Well, it's good to be in church. I'd rather be in church than the best hospital in town. <laughs> uh, I'm getting over rotten flu. Uh, anybody had the flu that's been going around this year? So it's, don't yeah, stay away if you can. It's been not not great. My wife's got the flu now, so we've been sharing our germs with each other. So she's uh, not not very well, but she hopes to be here next week. So keep in your prayers and. Uh, it is important. So yeah, welcome to church today. Uh, fantastic. Good to see God doing great stuff. Uh, you know, it is Outreach Sunday, but today we've modeled that everyone can be a missionary. Everyone can be a missionary. Now, making a meal for someone who's in need is being a missionary. You know, putting some money in the offering and sending it to India is being a missionary. Because your life is uh, cashed up. When you give money, you're giving part of your life. So you're sending a little bit of your life via that disposable thing that we call money. And, uh, you know, we, we want to be a church community, just not a crowd of people that access a building who consume a Christian product and go home. But we want to be a Christian community that are all activated and being significant. And who knows that if you're hungry and you're sick, getting a knock at the door and there's a free meal there, that's significant. That changes people's lives. That's fantastic. So, you know, we try to educate our children. Other parents wouldn't have this problem, but we try to educate our children the difference between a home and a hotel. Okay? Now, in a hotel, you come when you want, you go when you want. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to make your bed, you know. You just ring up room service. You can leave all your crumbs everywhere, spill it on the carpet. doesn't matter, you know. But you pay a lot more, don't you, to live in a hotel. A home is a slightly different dynamic. We're meant to share and contribute to the overall family. And we want at Champion Lakes Christian Church to be not a hotel. No, flashy and fancy, just calm. You know, and all you have to do is simply contribute financially. Uh, we actually want you to come and be part of the family. And, you know, roll your sleeves up and find a place where you can work and thrive and do what God's called you to do. So, and it's exciting about Thursday. Uh, you know, numbers are good and all the rest, but we'd love to pack the room because the idea is, is that we are get, we are showing some people what Christianity is on Thursday morning. And so this will be the only exposure of some of the most significant leaders and opinion leaders in our area. This is the only exposure you're going to get to the church until they're forced to go to a wedding or a funeral or something. So it's a wonderful opportunity to have a great speaker, great environment, great food, and let's show off our God. He is awesome. How great is our God? Well, we've been doing this survey or this... Uh, expositional series on the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And, you know, we start off by establishing right up front, Paul has this incredible hope in chapter 1 that the Corinthians are going to be okay. Because later on we find out they've got some problems and they've got some issues, yeah? But he, he initially sets it up saying is, you have all that you need in order to succeed in this thing that we call the Christian walk in life and stuff. So he says, you're going to be okay. And then he starts to go through chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. And he's starting to address issues and problems. 
Because that's the trouble of the church. It's full of people. And people have problems. <laughs> and that's what is uh, part of the rub. And so we've looked at the problems of disunity within the church. What a, what a, what a problem that is in a church where there's disunity. We've looked at pride being an issue. We've looked at uh, issues of immorality. We've looked at questions over divorce and remarriage and all sorts of other things as well. And we're going on a particular journey and finish the book. And this morning, I'm going to try and do chapter 9 in one session and hopefully not too long. So we're going to do a whole session, a whole chapter, chapter 9. But just by way of introduction... Uh, who's watching the Olympics these days? Yeah, I'm not into it this year for some reason. I don't know why. I was I was devouring it last time four years ago, and maybe it's the time frame difference, or there's just not enough gold. <laughs> it's the time frame that's changed it. I, I don't know what's really causing it for me, but I'm not really getting into it. Um, but you know, it is fascinating when you see the. The effort and, uh, you know, the guy who lost the 100 metres um, drowning thing, <laughs> the 100 metres thing, yeah, more, you know, by one hundredth of a second. Oh, you know, all the time and the energy and the training that went into that uh, is just absolutely amazing. And then to lose by such a small amount. They're saying things like, well, maybe if you'd, um, if you'd shaved you know, he would have done better. You know, he shaved his whole body, but left some stubble on his face. And that cost him the one hundredth of a second. You know, it's really, really pretty rough. So you got 1 Corinthians chapter 9 there? Um, I'm going to introduce you to a lady in our church who's been coming for a little while. She doesn't know I'm going to do this right now. She's probably going to be embarrassed. But I'm going to ask Anna Marie to come up and read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for us. She has a yeah yeah, she has a great speaking voice. Do you know how to run an iPad? Absolutely, and she's a young, switched-on girl as well. So put your hands together, Anna Marie, and read one Corinthians nine. Oh, sorry, yes, excuse me. Do you need a mic? It always confuses me. It's my name, you see. <laughs> Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? I did, didn't I, Liz? I'll pick on everyone eventually. Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife with us, as the the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do, and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard? and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion, or does the law say the same thing? 
For the law of Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who ploughs and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realise that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I have never used any of these rights, and I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this of my own initiative, I would deserve payment, but I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realise that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, that will fade away but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Mm, fantastic. You did so good. A long section, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And a lot of it's dealing, actually, with uh, how much money you should pay to a minister. So, uh, like Paul, I'm actually saying I'm not writing this to you because I want a pay increase, all right? I'm not preaching this to you because I'm looking for a pay increase. But it is interesting that he really lays a foundation there that's entirely appropriate for ministry people to be appropriately rewarded for the uh, sowing spiritually into people's lives that they would receive a material blessing back. Which is a useful thing to know because you talk to some groups like the Church of the Latter-day Saints, they don't pay their ministers. They have compulsory tithing. You have to pay 10% of your income to belong to the church. And they don't pay their ministers, which is why it's one of the most 
wealthy organizations in the world. A lot of money coming in, not a lot of money going out. Jehovah's Witnesses would say the same thing. Yet clearly, Paul says it's entirely appropriate. It's also an interesting passage in the sense that uh, Peter, who you know one particular church claims was the first pope, was clearly a married man. So the first pope was married, along with a few others, which is an interesting thing to understand if you know your Bible. Interesting? Yeah, it's important, isn't it? So guess what? I'm married. It's the way I like it. When I was working for the public service many years ago, and I said to him, I'm going to resign and go to Bible college to study to be a minister, half the guys in the section said they were mortified. They said, what are you going to do with your wife? You know, in their thinking, this is a problem. Are you going to dump her or something? You know, bump her on the head with an axe or something, bear her in the backyard? You know, how are you going to do this thing? You know, but you're actually allowed to be married in the ministry, which is good. It is good. So um, that, those features are in there as well. And Paul goes into this thing of trying to reestablish his authority again. Now, without going into a lot of detail, the way that Greek society worked in the first century, is there, was, there was a phenomenon known as patronism, where you'd have wealthy patrons. And so in uh, the first century Corinth, life was not really based so much on what you know, but based on who you knew. And so there was a lot of this sort of thing, you know, you'd hang out with the right person, the right person who was a wealthy person. It would buy you favours. It would open doors for you. And often there would be this sense that they would be paying for you as well. I don't know if we're a lot different today. (laughs) I don't know. I'll let you think about that. But that was a real issue. So Paul wants to come and preach the gospel. And in the church at Corinth, you had some very wealthy people get saved. And you had some very, you had slaves in there. You had people from mixed backgrounds, ethnically religious and stuff, come into this new body. And they were getting some rubbing issues. They were getting teething problems. And naturally, what some of the wealthy people would have done, they would have said to the apostle Paul, let me pay for you. Let me provide for your wages. But it would have been tapping to a thing where it would have been, he would have then been answerable to them. He would have then had obligations to them. And so he declined to do that and worked as a tent maker. So when we get to 1 Corinthians 9, he's just trying to unpack that a little bit more, saying, don't I have a right to come and deal with you authoritatively on certain issues? Because he's disciplining the church as we're going through it. Because you know that I came there and I did not demand a wage even though it's my right. And it's very important. If you go down to verse 12, for example, 9 verse 12, depending on the version, the expressions used in one of the translations is, I did not abuse my authority. And I think it's something as, as kingdom people, we've always got to handle with great care. Whether you're just a minister or whether you're the father of a home or you're uh, the boss in a business or whatever, you have some legitimate rights, yeah? You have some legitimate authority. But what the gospel would cause us to do is not to abuse our rights and our privileges. And so is it appropriate that a minister is well paid? Yes, but Paul says this. I would not want that to happen if it 
brought any disrespect to the name of Jesus. I would not take any right that I have if it reflected badly on my ability to win people for Jesus. And so I think we need to just stand back sometimes and say there are some incredible ministers around the world who I don't think add value to the gospel being good news and purity when sometimes their lifestyles are excessive and they're just beyond parameters. I don't think God can actually say that's really helping the cause. And so whether we're a father and we have authority, we should not abuse our authority, amen? Whether we're a husband and we have authority, we should not abuse our authority. Whether I'm a minister and I have certain rights and responsibilities, I pray that I'll never abuse the authority that I have. But sadly it happens. But people say, I'm the pastor and I demand this and I want that and I want double honour. Paul says, that's not what I do. What I do is... I, don't, I want to find common ground. If necessary, when I'm with the Jews, I will keep all the Jewish dietary laws so that by all means I might save some. If I'm with Greeks, I'll eat the prawn cocktail. You know, I'll eat the other stuff. I'll have the pork crackling because I'm prepared to find common ground. Interesting juxtaposition. I do not keep the law of God, but I keep the law of Christ. Do you hear what he's saying in that? Jesus changed things. The law of God was about Torah, the commandments, the 613 precepts, you know, this legalistic approach to getting your righteousness with God that Jason so eloquently uh, represented to us. But the law of Christ is spelt L-O-V-E. It's loving people. It's not about law. It's about love. And that's what Paul's basic uh, position was in all that. So that's a lot covering most of the chapter. And so it is interesting to see how uh, Paul is working through the text to establish his authority. One of the uh, ironies is that the very, first per- the very first individual to be born in mainland China and to die in mainland China and win a gold medal was actually not Chinese. It was a Scotsman, and his name was Eric Liddell. Born in China, lived in China, ministered in China, died in China. The very first Chinese Olympic medal was a missionary who died in China to see Chinese people won to Jesus Christ. And, you know, when we look now and we see literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese people coming to Jesus Almost on a weekly basis means, you've got to say, God honours the seed of, of the blood of martyrs. You know, whilst it's, uh, you know, it's tragic to hear of anybody who loses their life, as we've heard today, one of the empire pastors, we also know that God will take that and out of that will come revival and North India is going to be reached for Jesus and there's going to be lots of curry and lots of rice in heaven. <laughs> So Eric Liddell is the first Chinese Olympic things. And of course, many of us would have seen it immortalized in that film called The Chariots of Fire. And you know the story? Maybe you don't. But he's this uh, not a particularly bright guy, but he's a, a gifted athlete. And he was being trained for the 100-meter dash. And then it was worked out in the 1924 Olympics that the day that his race was going to be won was a Sunday. 
And that was back when there was a lot more legalism associated with the whole idea of the Sabbath. And, you know, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 says that thou shalt keep the Sabbath, for it is holy. Now, I, I thank God that we're not under that legalistic regime now where, you know, if you go to even Israel today, on a Saturday, the lifts won't work. You have to use the stairs. Because if you use a lift, that's apparently work. You know, we don't want to go through the 40 things less one. It's part of the Mishnah. The 40 things less one. You can do one stitch, but not two stitch. You can undo one stitch, but not two stitches. You can pick up your shoes, but you can't, can't wear shoes with nails on you. We, we thank God we're away from that. But, can I say but? But, maybe we don't treat the Lord's Day, Sunday, with the specialness it deserves. It's a fact. We, we live in the Western society and today people are less likely to come to church on a regular basis than ever before. It's no longer considered to be something which is special, something which is sacred, something which is holy, something that's pleasing to God. It's now becoming something which is about an option that I do. Do I do T-ball today? Do I visit grandma? Do I mow the lawns or do I go to church? Can I just urge you gently in the name of Jesus today that we live, I believe, at the end of the age. We believe, I believe we live at a time when Jesus is the answer and the world out there desperately needs him and uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket as fast as it can and at the time when the church should be standing up as a, you know, the soldiers of God in full power and anointing and authority where the praise and the worship's dynamic and the signs of wonders following, that's the time when believers are actually opting out of going to church. Something's wrong. And if you read the Bible, it says at the end of the day that the love of many will actually grow cold. May that not happen in Mike's life. You know, I've been a believer for so many years. I hope that I love Jesus more today than I've ever loved him in my life. Can you say amen? Amen. So let me just say to you, maybe Eric was a little bit over-legalistic, but you've got to admire the man. Incredible pressure was placed upon him to actually run on the Sunday, and he just stood. No, it's against my convictions, my principle. I will not run on Sunday. And they had the Prince Albert, they had uh, all the politicians, uh, the Olympic Committee, all put this pressure on him to actually run the race. And he said no. And so at the last minute, they got him to run in the 400 metre event, of which he ran a world record time of 47.6 seconds. (laughs) But it captures something unique about the man. He's a man of faith. And he's a man who runs because he believes it's God's call. And there's that famous line in the movie, I probably should get Jim up to say because he's got the right accent for this. Good Scottish accent. (laughs) He says, uh, uh, Haiti, God has made me for a purpose. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Uh, I, I pray this morning that by the time we finish, each of you will be able to say, God has made me for a purpose. 
And when I wank, I feel his pleasure. You know, for me, that's actually worship. I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I actually don't so much feel God's pleasure when I'm preaching. You know, I don't know why you guys come to listen to me. I do my absolute best. To me, it's a miracle you ever show up. I am simply a broken individual that Jesus saved 30 years ago, and he's still working on me. <laughs> I'm still, I have not arrived anywhere. But, uh, so I don't feel his pleasure up here. I feel his pleasure down there when I'm singing how great is that I feel I was made to love God. And when I'm loving God, I feel the pleasure of God upon my life. And there's no other space like that in the world. When I'm alone, you know, maybe up at New North here or down in the Stirling Ranges going for a walk and a talk with the kangaroos and looking at wildflowers and stuff with Hillsong playing in my, my little phony thing, I feel his pleasure. And my, 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 my fear is that there could be people here today who might have been coming to church for 400 years and you actually don't know what I'm talking about. Have you felt the pleasure of God upon your life? Because that's what we're made for. Hedy, God made me with a purpose. And when I run, when I worship, when I bake a meal, when I put an extra $100 in the offering to bless the missionaries, I don't know what it is for you. When I serve on car park, I feel his pleasure. We were created for God to bring him pleasure. I love what one theologian says. I have great hope for mankind because God has a sense of humor and he finds people very funny. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and says, God finds you funny. <laughs> you know, when he ran, when Eric went, ran the gold medal, he was a celebrity. I don't say that word, sorry. Always comes out sound like laboratory. He was a celebratory. And uh, my dyslexia gets in the way. He, um, all that happened and stuff. But, you know, instead of him using his fame and, you know, going on the speaking tour and all the rest, he went back to China to sow into... This is China when the Boxer Rebellion's taking place. 200 missionaries are killed. 30,000 Christian believe, Chinese believers are killed. This is a time of incredible turmoil. He's arrested. It's a time when the communist comes up. He's put in an intern camp. He's now in a concentration camp. He's been there for two years. Pretty bad conditions. Winston Churchill organizes with the Chinese government to get a, a release of important prisoners from this jail called, uh, down in Weilang in China. And uh, on the list of guys, they wanted Eric Liddell, obviously, to come forth because he's a famous athlete, he's a good man, a white man stuff. So he was on the list. On the day that he's about to be released from the camp, Eric swaps his place for an unknown pregnant woman. And he died about a week later. But tell you what, he crossed over another finishing line. Another finishing line. He didn't get a gold medal. He got a gold crown. And he got the applause of heaven! He crossed over and he did something amazing. And today, millions of Chinese are being swept in the kingdom because of the seed sown by the Ericsson Life 
and by others like uh, Hudson Taylor, etc. So, in, incredible story. Uh, I'll throw up a video clip now just to zone you in a little bit on it. Thanks, Sam. He's a gentleman. Takes their hand. Don't expect I'll see you after the race. Wish he's a competitor's luck. It's <laughs> a deal with this guy, little coach. Your problem? No problem. He's a flyer. He's had two. Yeah. Ra- great, great movie. And so. Um, you know, Eric Liddell, you know, does this incredible feat, wins, and he goes back to China to preach the gospel. And, uh, you know, unless you've found out your purpose, life's not going to make sense, guys. It's just not going to make sense. For the average Australian, their purpose is probably, I want to be happy. And I've found the more you focus on making you happy, the more miserable you will become. <laughs> That's the way it works. One, one uh, Cynthia Kersey writes about a prominent psychologist who did a survey of over 3,000 people. They asked these 3,000 people this question, what do you live for? And 94% said that they have no purpose in their lives. I mean, that's tragic, isn't it? Just to be on the little treadmill, the little rat running around and around and around and around, you know, go, go around again, not going anywhere, no real purpose. So discovering your purpose is an incredible key to experiencing the pleasure of God upon your life. You know, I've found that the praises and the accolations of human beings fade pretty quickly. You know, they, they you know, they're nice to get, but they go very, very quickly. Uh, I was sitting with a minister once in the National Conference of the Ascended God in a, in Australia, uh, a great man of God, but there's still some issues in his life in that he feels that he's looking, I think, for external validation. wants someone on the outside to say, you're doing a good job, you're okay. And uh, the former national president, the Ascended God, comes up on the stage because he's retiring and he gets a standing ovation for about three minutes, which was very wonderful. And he got a leather briefcase. And he probably got a gift of about $5,000 to go on a trip. That's nice, isn't it? I leaned across my minister's. That's it. That's all it is. That's the best that can happen to you here. I tell you, when we get to heaven and our, we, we cross over there and heaven stands to attention and there's Jesus with his arms wide open, those male scarred hands are open to embrace us and say, well done, good and faithful ser- servant. That is eternal. It will never fade. It will never disappear. And we've finally arrived home. And that's what we're created for ultimately. But while we're in in town, while we're still here, while you're still in the body, are you still in the body this morning? Some of you are not so certain. (laughs) Give them a little bit of a shake. Are you in the body this morning? Well, the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says that we were created for a purpose before the very foundation of the world, before anything ever existed, God had you in mind, my friend. He had you in mind and had a purpose for your life. You are purpose built. You are created and designed by God for a reason. Your life matters. Your life has value. God has something for you to do. 
And it doesn't matter how old you are, where you are, that's still not finished until you've finished your purpose. And then Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says this, that God works within us to give us the desire and the power to fulfill our purpose. That's brilliant. If you know God, that's the big if. If you have invited Jesus Christ into your life and you've been born again, you've come alive on the inside to God and he lives within you, then you have the power and the desire now in your life to actually fulfill your purpose. You actually have all the resource of heaven to do what God's called you to do. You don't have what God's not called you to do, you know, but you have been given what God has you to do, all the resources necessary. Uh, incredible. So there's great power in purpose. We were created for a purpose. We have been given power within to do God's will and purpose. We should prioritize God's day. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. It matters when you're not here. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, it matters when you're not here? And human fame is fickle, but faith is forever. Hallelujah. So we need a pure purpose. That's what the fun of that chapter is about. Let's not abuse authority. Let's not misuse the rights that we have in the gospel. Our purposes need to be pure. Our purposes need to be about people. Paul was prepared to modify his behavior because it's all about people. Yeah? And then he says the purpose needs to be passionate. There needs to be some discipline. You know, ultimately, life is wired this way. Our soul sits in the middle. That's our feeling life. That's our emotional life. That's our boohoo state. That's our happy state. The soul sits in the middle. And the spirit is one end, the body's the other end. And when we let the spirit dictate to the soul, then the body comes into alignment. And we live a life of success and a life of victory. When the spirit is ruling and reigning in your life, then you live a life of victory. But if it's the other way around, your soul's sitting in the middle, you're not listening to the spirit, but you're listening to the body, you know, your appetites then you become a slave to the body. And God has designed it so that you can have victory over the natural life. You can live a super, super natural life. God's given a super over all the natural. But it's about orientation. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to respond to? And the Bible says there's a battle going on. You know, the good things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The bad things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The battle's going on. There is certainly conflict. The spirit is at war with the body, yes? Anybody can understand what I'm talking about here? But God says that if you choose to let the spirit reign, you will live in victory. It is a choice. Yes, there's a battle, but guess what? You choose who wins. You get to choose who wins, whether Jesus wins in your life or whether the body wins in your life. That's the uh, wonderful thing. So we need a passionate purpose. Paul says, I need to run in a way so that having preached to others, I myself am not disqualified. You know, there are some rules to success. And if you break the rules, you'll actually end up being disqualified. What a tragedy that would be. 
to spend year after year of your life saying to other people, you need to do this, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, to preach and whatever, and then get to a place where you get disqualified. I think we all remember the time when that uh, Australian walker, I still think walking is one of the most bizarre athletic competitions. That and synchronized swimming, I just don't, don't understand. <laughs> but, you know, here's this walker. She's coming in. She's the first. She's the Australian. She's going flat out and stuff. And she walks into the auditorium. She can see the finishing line. And up goes a little red flag. And everybody goes, ah. That's, that's tragedy, isn't it? So let's, let's enjoy the boundaries of grace that God's given to us, but let's stay within those boundaries. Because if we actually sow to the wrong things, we can end up disqualifying ourselves from what God has called us to do. So it does require discipline. It does require passion. But unless you've got the purpose, the passion won't flow. But if you've got the purpose, then passion will come through. So, thank you, Rain. What was her name? Heidi? Lorna. The girl up there. I'll call her Heidi. God has made me for a purpose. And when I... I feel this pleasure. What's God made you for? What's your purpose? For me, praising God and worshipping God is all it is for me. I don't need to be a pastor. I don't need to be a minister. For me, that's the zone where I feel God's pleasure. For me, it's not just singing songs. It's about feeling God's pleasure and pleasing my God. But for you, it might be... I don't know, get coming down to the church and fixing some door handles or cleaning, whatever it might be. But we are created by God for purpose. God's given us the power and the desire to actually fulfill that and bring glory to his name. Take some discipline, take some purpose, but then God gets all the glory. Father, I thank you that you are an amazing God. We thank you, Lord, for the heroes of faith like Eric Liddell. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we don't serve for, uh, uh, Lord, a, a laurel wreath that will fade and decay. But, Lord, we serve, Lord, for an imperishable crown and an eternal relationship with you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this day. That, Lord, you'd speak to them deeply about purpose. And, Lord, some have engaged the uh, challenge, the discipline of purpose in the past. And for various reasons, Lord, they've... Uh, Perhaps through disappointment, Lord, or distraction, Lord, they've, uh, they've just dropped that passion for the purpose. Lord, I pray that you'd lift up their eyes, that they could see the finish line, that, Lord, they would be able to, uh, Lord, reignite the call of God upon their life and to move forward to all that you've called them to do. In Jesus' wonderful name we ask it. Amen. And the... Um, the actor, Ian Charleston, who played uh, Eric Liddell in the movie, one of the most difficult things he had to do, he had to learn to actually run. You know, you got the good slow-mo, he's running like that. This is what Eric Liddell would do. One of the most famous races he ran was at Stoke-on-Trent. It was the uh, 400 metres, and he tripped. And he's now so like 40 metres behind, and he gets up. 
And in theory, that's impossible over 400 metres to make up that space. And he made it up. And he did it by putting his head back like this, closing his eyes, and he does this unorthodox manner like this. And this, um, this actor had to learn to do that. And as they're shooting, he's running off the track, he's bumping into other actors. He's, he, says, he just found it so difficult. Because you like to see where you're going, don't you, when you're running as fast as you can. And what he, then it suddenly occurred what happened to him. He's running with complete blind trust. And he started to remember some of the trust exercise you used to do in school and youth camps and things. You know the trust exercise, you get someone behind you and, you know, is someone going to... Jeff! Gotta... <laughs> is someone going to catch me? Or, you know, you run at a wall and you wait for someone to say stop before you run into the wall. You know, just how... It's a trust exercise. He worked out that uh, Eric Liddell ran in trust. He got to a stage where he ran out of his human ability, closed his eyes, put his head back, and he ran, feeling the pleasure of God in perfect blind trust. And he discovered that there was power within to actually get him across the line. Uh, on um, Friday, uh, Pastor Carolyn had her credential upgraded. So uh, th- that was very exciting. It's great to see the whole team there supporting her. She's a great asset to our church, enormously personal blessing to me. And she's now going to come and share why you need to know Jesus Christ as your personal saviour. <laughs> thank you. It was a special day and I just thank everybody for coming, That um, the team that came. But more importantly, it really is important that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal saviour, now is your time. Because at the end of the day, there's only one thing that matters. And that's that you know Jesus Christ and you ask him to come into your life and change you to the way that God intended for you to be. Because we can't do it on our own. We've tried, and we can't do it on our own. We need Jesus Christ for his strength and his comfort and his guidance. And if you don't have that today, just as everybody's eyes are closed and as the saints are all praying... Just put your hand up and we can actually pray for you today to get that. Mm -hmm.